0: One two three testing one two three this is radio free Mormon on the air broadcasting behind enemy lines. well, it's been almost a full year now since the November policy of the LDS Church was leaked to the public. That happened on November fifth, two thousand and fifteen. You may recall the new policy involved branding those people living in gay marriages or gay relationships as apostates needing church discipline and hopefully excommunication from the LDS church and also labeling any children with a parent living in such a relationship as one who could not receive a blessing in the church, a name in the church, baptism in the church, or priesthood ordination in the church. Not until such time as that child turned 18, moved out of the house, and renounced the same-sex marriage relationship of the child's parent. Once again, this happened on November 5th of 2015, giving new meaning to the old English expression, remember, remember the 5th of November, which originally was applied to the gunpowder plot created by Guy Fawkes, whose effigy is burned every year in England on this date to commemorate the occasion. But now when we say, remember, remember the 5th of November, We, as LDS, think of something else. It is so important to remember at this stage that this is not a policy that was announced. This is not a policy that was published. This is not a policy that was revealed in a news conference. I've heard all those things stated after the fact, but that is a rewriting of history. This is a policy that was secretly inserted into the secret church leadership manual it appears that this policy was inserted electronically into the leadership manual on November 3rd and then two days later was leaked to the public with the help of John DeLynn and a contact he had inside the church office building. The origin of this policy was a ham-fisted attempt to sneak this new policy into the handbook, not a pronouncement of a revelation by God. Within a 24-hour period between the time that this policy was leaked on November 5th and the time that the Church actually acknowledged and confirmed that the story was true, there was an interesting thing that happened within Mormonism. Many Mormons were shocked and appalled that such a policy might exist. And so they denied the truth of this policy. They couldn't believe that this could possibly be true. It had not been confirmed as true yet by the church. And many Mormons rejected the idea that this could possibly be something that their LDS church was doing and their leadership was doing. But 24 hours later, when the church confirmed that it was in fact something that their leaders were doing, there was a remarkable shift that happened with many Mormons and that shift was to go from rejecting the idea that their leaders could possibly do such a thing, to embracing the idea that their leaders could do such a thing, and declaring it as the word and will of the Lord. Which goes to illustrate a phenomenon in the LDS Church regarding the definition of truth. Because in the LDS Church, truth is determined not by what is said, but by who says it. Once Mormons understood, that their leaders did actually say this, it became truth, regardless of its content. The leak on November fifth, two 2015 created such a furor and such a controversy. It went public. It was in the New York Times, among other newspapers. Church leaders scurried about trying to find some way to address this leak. They had been caught completely flat-footed. And so on the evening of Friday, November 6, 2015, an interview with Elder Christopherson was released on the LDS Church website. You can almost hear the air quotes I'm putting around the word interview, because really it wasn't an interview. What it was was Michael Otterson, who is the top church PR guy, asking questions to Elder Christopherson about the subject, and Elder Christopherson giving back what appeared to be largely scripted responses. Presumably, Elder Christopherson was chosen because he has a gay brother, so it gives him some sort of gravitas or something. It's the gay version of saying, hey, I'm not racist, I have lots of black friends. As I say, it seemed totally scripted. It went on for about a half an hour on the subject of the reasons for the new policy. But critical to the subject of the discussion tonight, not once was revelation mentioned as a foundation or a source for this policy. Instead, Elder Christofferson talked about it in terms of a policy and giving the different reasons that he felt justified the issuance of this new policy. And there I'm falling into my own trap. It really wasn't issued. It was snuck into the handbook. Important thing to remember. But Elder Christopherson's interview did not calm the waters. If anything, it just made things worse. So during that week, between Friday, November 6th and Friday, November 13th, the LDS Church recognized that there was still a great deal of controversy among its members. And they were telling the members, through their local leaders, to hold on, to sit tight, to be calm, not to do anything rash because a clarification was coming. And indeed, that clarification came on Friday, November 13th, in the form of a first presidency letter. Many were hoping that the first presidency letter would back away from this policy, would discount it, would say, no, that's not really what we meant, would walk it back in some way. But basically what the first presidency letter said is, no, we really meant it after all. The first presidency letter was signed, as first presidency letters typically are, by the three members of the First Presidency, President Thomas S. Monson and his two counselors. Again, important to note, the First Presidency letter says nothing about the source of this new policy being revelation. But there was something else in the First Presidency letter. There was also a correction of the policy in the handbook that had been leaked. That's because the policy in the manual use certain language that raised a lot of questions to members of the church during that intervening week. It was very clear that a child, whether natural or adopted, with a parent living in a gay relationship may not receive a name and a blessing. So a child without, with a parent who lives in a gay relationship cannot even receive a name in the church. And also that a child, parent living in that kind of relationship could not be baptized, male child could not be, could not receive the priesthood at age 12 as is customary. But here's the language that really caused the confusion. I'm quoting now from the policy. A mission president or a state president may request approval from the office of the First Presidency to baptize and confirm, ordain, or recommend missionary service for a child, and here we get to it, for a child of a parent who has lived or is living in a same-gender relationship. So this raises a whole lot of questions for people who were members of the church in good standing. The first one was, it applies to any child with a parent who has lived at any time in the past in a gay relationship. Well, what if I was in a homosexual relationship when I was in college, but I changed my ways, I repented, and I'm now a faithful Latter-day Saint, temple marriage, heterosexual marriage with children. Does this new policy apply to my children? Well, by its terms, it does apply to those children, and they can't be baptized. The second question it raises is, what if my husband or wife left me because he came out of the closet as gay? Now he's living with another man or woman, and I'm still in the church. I'm still faithful in the church. I still have the children I had by my spouse, but their father or mother is in a gay relationship. Does this mean that my children can't get baptized? Well, it does mean that by its terms. And the third question it raised is, what if a boy has already been baptized but has not received the priesthood? Does this new policy prevent him from receiving the priesthood? It seems to by its terms. So when the First Presidency issued its letter a week later, what it did was it corrected the policy in regard to those items and made it clear that the language of the policy actually didn't mean what the language of the policy said. Here's what they say, and here's how it applies to those three questions. Now I'm quoting from the letter. The provisions of Handbook 1, Section 1613, that restrict priesthood ordinances for minors, apply only to those children whose primary residence is with a couple living in a same-gender marriage or similar relationship. The first correction that that makes is it takes out the past tense from the policy, no longer is it for a child of a parent who has lived or is living in a same-gender relationship. Now it's only using the present tense. It applies only to those children whose primary residence is with a couple living in a same-gender marriage or similar relationship. The other part of that same sentence in the first presidency letter that corrects what was in the policy is it says that it applies only to those children whose primary residence is with a couple living in a same-gender marriage or similar relationship. That's a massive change from the policy as it was written, because the policy as it was written had nothing to do with who the child lived with or for how long the child lived with them. It simply had to do with a child, I'm quoting from the policy, for a child of a parent who has lived or is living in a same-gender relationship. In other words, this child, according to the policy, doesn't have to live with that parent at all, doesn't even have to have visitation with that parent at all. It's simply the fact that the parent himself or herself lives in a same-gender relationship that disqualifies the child from receiving any priesthood ordinances. And by that it means a name, a blessing as a baby, baptism as an eight-year-old, confirmation as an eight-year-old, and receiving the priesthood at 12 if the child is a boy child. The first presidency letter also corrected the policy and answered the other concern that many members were having about whether a boy child who's already been baptized but hasn't been ordained yet to the priesthood at age 12 can qualify to be baptized for the priesthood at age 12. Quoting from the letter, when a child living with a same gender couple has already been baptized and is actively participating in the church, provisions of section 1613 do not require that his or her membership activities or priesthood privileges be curtailed or that further ordinances be withheld. So that's the other correction to the policy in the first presidency letter is to make it clear that... Any children who have already been baptized at age eight when the policy went into effect on November 3rd, 2015, they can still get the priesthood, if they're a boy, at age 12. As soon as this letter was released, the debate ensued as to whether this letter was a clarification or a correction. Apologists for the Church insisted on seeing it as a clarification. In other words, the argument was, it doesn't really change anything that's in the policy, it's just clarifying what's in the policy. It seems pretty clear to me that the First Presidency letter actually corrects the new policy. It doesn't just clarify it. It corrects it. It changes the terms and restricts the number of children to whom it applies. That's a correction in my book, not just a clarification. But LDS apologists insisted it was not. It was just a clarification. They insisted it didn't change the terms of the policy. It just made it clearer. The interesting thing was that some apologists would die on the hill of its being a clarification. It seems they felt strongly about this issue, though the language is what the language is. The reason they felt so strongly is presumably because they felt uncomfortable with the idea that the leaked policy would have to be corrected only one week later. I mean, Mormons are used to doctrines changing over time, but to change in one week's time strained the faith of even the faithful. So, whatever you call the change between the policy and the first presidency letter, it is a substantial change to the children to whom this new policy applies. Incredibly, another argument surfaced because it just sounded so darn bad that the LDS church was venting its spleen on the children and babies of gay parents. The argument popped up that it was actually a policy not directed at the children. The church loves the children. This is done for the benefit of the children. It was actually directed at the parents. But of course it was directed at the children, even though it was based on their relationship with the living situation of their gay parents. If a parent was living in a committed homosexual relationship, that was out of bounds. No baptism for you. Come back one year, or actually in this case, come back in 10 years, when you've turned 18, after you've left your parents' home, after you have renounced their abominable practice of living in a homosexual relationship. Presumably, it is okay with God if a parent engages in random homosexual acts with numerous partners. The policy does not address them. Their children can still be baptized. But if a child has one or more parents in a committed gay marriage, legally recognized by the state, that's when the world comes to an end. And actually, it even gets worse than that because according to the policies of the church, it's okay with God if your parent is... A rapist, if your parent is a bank robber, if your parent is a mass murderer, there is still nothing in the policies that prevent the children from being blessed, from being baptized, from receiving priesthood ordinances, which ends up having the effect of making, in the church's eyes and presumably in God's eyes, living in a committed homosexual marriage worse than rape and being a mass murderer. Now we get to the issue of the doctrinal changes that this causes. When the Church issued this policy and the First Presidency Letter, it undermined several fundamental core doctrines of Mormonism. First off, we can look at the New Testament where Jesus got pretty pissed off at his Apostles for keeping the little children from coming to him, and he told them, suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not. I don't know about you, but I've been a member of the church for almost 40 years, and I can't count the number of times that I have heard the teaching in the LDS church that we come unto Christ by being baptized. That is how we come unto Christ. That is how little children come unto Christ, by being baptized when they're 8 years old. And it sounds a lot like the LDS church now is forbidding little children to come unto Christ by refusing them baptism, based upon Nothing that the child does, but based upon what their parent or parents do. Which gets us to the second fundamental doctrine that this policy undermines. It's in the second article of faith of the LDS Church, which states, Men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. There is this idea in the LDS Church, that we have agency, that we have the ability to make choices for good or bad, and that we will be judged not by what somebody else does, not by what our dad did, not by what Adam and Eve did, but by what we do, and only by what we do. It's a foundational teaching of Mormonism, and the new policy cuts it off at the knees. Now children are punished for their parents' transgressions under this policy. And the fact that Elder Christofferson says the new policy is done out of love for the children only makes it worse. How Orwellian can you get? The third doctrine this undercuts is the necessity of the gift of the Holy Ghost. In the LDS church children are baptized at the age of eight and then they are confirmed a member of the church and as part of that confirmation they are given the gift of the Holy Ghost. How often do we hear how vital it is that members of the church have the gift of the Holy Ghost with them to guide them and lead them in the paths of righteousness, especially during the trials and temptations in teenage years. But if you have a gay parent, now you don't need the Holy Ghost. You don't need the gift of the Holy Ghost after all. Elder Christopherson downplays it. He says it isn't that big a deal. They can get it later. It is a blessing deferred. But, If it isn't a big deal for kids with gay parents to have the gift of the Holy Ghost, how can the LDS Church say it is a big deal for kids without gay parents to have the gift of the Holy Ghost? The same goes for baptism. If it isn't a big deal for kids with gay parents to be baptized, how can the Church say baptism is a big deal for kids with straight parents? This is a two-edged sword, and it cuts both ways. Another fundamental doctrine of Mormonism that this policy undercuts is the revelation in Doctrine and Covenants that says parents are responsible to have their children baptized when they reach the age of accountability, which in the LDS Church is the age of eight, and if the parents do not see that their children are baptized when they are eight, the sin be upon the heads of the parents. What are we to say if it is not the parents, but it is the Church that refuses to allow certain children to be baptized when they reach the age of accountability? on whose head is the sin in that case. And the Church acts as if it is a given that all such children who are not baptized when they're eight will reach the age of 18, move out of their parents' home, have the chance to renounce their parents' lifestyle so they can receive baptism. What about those who die before reaching 18? Who didn't receive baptism when they could have because of the Church policy? Who did not have their sins remitted because of the new Church policy? Doctrinally speaking, this is a big sin. On whose head does it go? A lot of speculation has gone on about why it is the Church issued this new policy. And the reason so much speculation has gone on is because it's clear that the reasons the Church is given for issuing this new policy don't hold water. That's why so much speculation. The bottom line, from my point of view, is that the Church was so upset about the Supreme Court decision last year legalizing gay marriage nationwide... That they decided to vent some spleen and show that they weren't going to take it lying down. This was a big deal for the church. This was a huge loss for the church. The church has been spending decades fighting the legalization of gay marriage in every single state in the union in which this issue was raised. The church used the Mormons in the different legislatures throughout the states as point people in order to fight any legislation that came up in those states that would legalize gay marriage. And finally, after decades and decades and decades of fighting this tooth and nail, the U.S. Supreme Court delivers the fatal blow. The church has lost their fight. There is no more that they can do. They can't fight it anymore. Or can they? The church was going to show they weren't going to take this lying down. They were going to do something. And the people to pay for it would be the children. And they were so confident that what they were doing was right, That they tried to sneak the new policy into the leadership manual in the dead of night without anybody knowing about it well even after this first presidency letter was issued november 13th of 2015 the controversy continued there were mass resignations on temple square some members however held out hope and the hope that they were holding out was that this was simply a policy it had only been called a policy it was put as a policy in the manual it was leaked It was only called a policy by Elder Christofferson in the interview. It was not talked about as a revelation. It was not talked about as a revelation in the First Presidency letter. If it's not a revelation, the hope was, it can be changed, relatively simply. There is a time and a chance for the Church to walk this back and simply change it. But President Russell M. Nelson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles took that hope away in January of 2016. He was in Hawaii with his wife, Wendy, giving an address at a worldwide young adult devotional. It is two months after the first presidency letter was issued. It is two months after Elder Christofferson was interviewed. And for the first time ever, President Nelson is going to declare that this new policy is not just a policy. It is a revelation from Almighty God. It's not in general conference, mind you. That this announcement is made. It's at a young adult broadcast from Hawaii. Here's the quote from Elder Nelson. Apostles counsel together and share all the Lord has directed us to understand and to feel individually and collectively. And then we watch the Lord move upon the president of the church to proclaim the Lord's will. He doesn't say exactly what that looks like, watching the Lord move upon the president of the church. But obviously, when you're an apostle, you know what to look for. Continuing the quote, This prophetic process was followed in 2012 with a change in minimum age for missionaries and again with the recent additions to the Church's Handbook consequent to the legalization of same-sex marriage in some countries. And by the way, I think that supports my position that this new policy is a reaction to the U.S. Supreme Court decision because Elder Nelson says it. He says that the new policy was, quote, consequent to the legalization of same-sex marriage in some countries. Well, obviously he means the United States because it had been legalized in a bunch of other countries before this where the church exists, but a policy wasn't seen to be needed until it was legalized here. Going on with the quote, filled with compassion for all and especially for the children. These would be the children who aren't going to be able to get a name and a blessing or be baptized for remission of sins or receive the gift of the Holy Ghost to guide them in the paths of righteousness those children filled with compassion for all and especially for the children we wrestled at length to understand the Lord's will in this matter ever mindful of God's plan of salvation and of his hope for eternal life for each of his children we considered countless permutations and combinations of possible scenarios that could arise Okay, I've got to break in here for a second. This is hysterical. Elder Nelson describes a process of wrestling with the matter, pondering about it, praying about it, and considering all the possible countless permutations and combinations of scenarios that could arise. And yet, this policy was so ham-fistedly thrown together that a week later, a first presidency letter had to be issued correcting all the problems with it because they didn't actually consider the countless permutations and combinations of possible scenarios that could arise. Continuing the quote, We met repeatedly in the temple in fasting and prayer, and sought further direction and inspiration. And then, when the Lord inspired his prophet, this is the money quote, and then, when the Lord inspired his prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, to declare the mind of the Lord and the will of the Lord, each of us during that sacred moment felt a spiritual confirmation. It was our privilege as apostles to sustain what had been revealed to President Monson. That's the end of the quote. A little commentary. There's a lot of words here, but Elder Nelson really doesn't say anything. It's like the quote from the merchant of Venice. Gratiano speaks an infinite deal of nothing more than any man in all Venice. That's how I feel about Elder Nelson here. He's using a lot of words to give the impression that he's describing something really significant, but he's really not describing anything. He's making a claim about something that he says happened, but he doesn't really describe it at all. It seems that he's trying to pattern his description somewhat after the 1978 priesthood revelation and how that process is generally described. He doesn't bring up the fact that President Thomas S. Monson is having serious mental health difficulties, and was at the time that he says this revelation was received, which frankly does not inspire a whole lot of confidence in anything that President Thomas S. Monson says he's receiving from the Lord. But, and I think this is significant to me, he says it was our privilege as apostles, plural, to sustain what had been revealed to President Monson. So all the other apostles are present. There's President Monson, there's the 12 apostles, there's his two counselors, that is 14 witnesses that Elder Nelson puts at the scene of the crime. I mean, the scene of the revelation. So this raises the question, are any of those other 14 witnesses going to corroborate Elder Nelson's story? Now, that may seem a presumptuous thing to ask about an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it may sound like I'm challenging his word. Well, here at Radio Free Mormon, we are no respecter of persons. Look, if I have a client who says something happened that is favorable to him, the first thing I want to do is I want to get as much corroboration for that story as I possibly can. Is this something that is just one person saying it? Or are there other people who can corroborate it? So when I get a story, the first thing I ask, were, were there other people present? Is there other documentation that you can provide that will corroborate your story? And because of that, I'm wondering, what is it that these other apostles are going to say about this? General Conference comes up in April. I'm listening carefully. I'm listening to see if any other Apostle will come forward and corroborate what Elder Nelson said happened back in January of that year. And all I heard was crickets. And with this announcement by President Nelson, the LDS Church has entered into a brave new world of Revelation. One of the main claims of the LDS Church is that We have a living prophet on the earth who receives continual revelation from the Lord. Now, Joseph Smith received a lot of revelation. Brigham Young claimed to receive some, John Taylor some, uh, Wilford Woodruff maybe one, and after that it's pretty much tapered off since then into oblivion. In fact, we are rapidly approaching the year 2018, which will be the 100th anniversary of the last revelation that was added to the Doctrine and Covenants. But regardless of what a person thinks about Joseph Smith and whether his claims to revelation were really true and really from the Lord, the fact is that Joseph Smith claimed his revelations for himself. He said, these are revelations, I receive them from God. He doesn't have somebody else saying, hey, Joseph Smith received these revelations, and so you should believe them. And the same with Brigham Young and so on. But now we're entering into this brave new world where President Thomas S. Monson does not claim to have received this revelation. He is completely silent on the subject. The first presidency letter that he signed makes no mention of this policy being received by revelation, and he has said nothing about it since then. In fact, none of the other Apostles have said anything about it since then. What we have now is the unprecedented claim by an Apostle that the President of the Church received a revelation when the president of the church himself is silent on the issue. And now that's supposed to stand as a revelation to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm going to be honest with you. I have long wondered why it is that the LDS Church claims to receive revelation, and yet doesn't seem to ever really get around to receiving anything. We have prophets that don't prophesy, seers that don't see, revelators that don't reveal. So you might think that I would be excited about a revelation finally being claimed to be received by the leaders of the Church. The problem is not this revelation. This is not a revelation from God. The very fact that this is being claimed as a revelation from God tells me that these leaders do not represent God, that they have no connection with him, that they do not understand the Jesus of the New Testament that they are more into commandment-keeping and border-marking than they are into faith, hope, and charity. I hope that's not too strong. That's just the opinion of one man. Feel free to differ with it. I won't hold it against you. Oh, and then we get into the lead-in to President Nelson's Hawaii talk back in January. His wife, Wendy Nelson, spoke right before him. This was a team effort. If you listen to her talk, and then listen to President Nelson's talk right after, you will see that the second-to-last paragraph that Wendy Nelson gives is designed to set the stage for President Nelson's claim of this revelation to President Monson. Here's what Wendy Nelson says as she concludes her talk. Quote, So, now a question as I conclude. What if you learned that the Savior had already returned to earth? that he, as part of his second coming, had already met with some of his true followers in several marvelous large gatherings, gatherings about which the world, including CNN and the blogosphere, knew nothing. If you found out that the Savior was already on the earth, what would you desperately want to do today? And what would you be willing and ready to do tomorrow? End of the quote. What is Wendy saying here? What is she implying? She is implying it so strongly as to be virtually claiming it is happening, that Jesus has been already present on the earth as part of his second coming, meeting with large gatherings, gatherings about which the world doesn't know anything, but gatherings about which she does know either because she happens to be married to the Senior Apostle of the Quorum of the Twelve, or because she was present for herself. And so, by talking about all these meetings with the Savior, as if they really had happened, Wendy sets the stage for President Nelson to claim this revelation. Is the idea that this came directly from a face-to-face with the Savior? If not, what is the purpose? Is it just coincidence? I don't think so. Now we get to the interesting thing that's been going on with the seminary manual. Seminary is the program for 9th through 12th graders in the church who go on a daily basis during the school year for an hour of religious education. This quote from President Nelson claiming the new policy to be a revelation was put into the new seminary manual by June of 2016. When I heard that had happened, I thought that is an incredible turnaround time for an organization as big and as slow-moving as the LDS Church can be, to get something new into a manual. From January to June, it's in the new manual. That was an incredible turnaround time, and I thought, what kind of Herculean efforts must have taken place in order to make sure that happened? So it was in the manual. Seminary year is approaching with September, of course, with the regular school year. And then something remarkable happened, which is that the Friday before Seminary was scheduled to start the first Friday of September. Suddenly, and unexpectedly, and unannounced, the quote by President Nelson that this new policy was a revelation was suddenly taken out of the new seminary manual. For some reason, somebody thought, this isn't something that we want to be teaching the kids. And then, later that afternoon of that same Friday, it was put back in. And then, over the weekend, it was taken out again. So, ultimately, it was taken out. What on earth is going on here? Why doesn't the LDS Church want their children to be taught about this revelation from God? And then, finally, we find out that the Elder Nelson, quote, is back in the October Ensign, where his entire talk from the Young Adult Devotional in January is republished. It makes some wonder who is in charge of this outfit, What is going on? It's like there's a power struggle going on in Salt Lake City, and the power struggle is about whether the claim that this new policy is revelation is going to live, or whether it's going to die, whether it's going to be published, or whether it's not going to be published. It's like watching people fighting for control of the steering wheel in the clown car. But in conclusion, this claim that this policy is a revelation from God is now in print in the October Enzyme. It is printed in an official church publication, and that makes it doctrine, folks, like it or not. The powers fighting for the publication of the claim that the new policy is a revelation appear to have won the day. But you know, for a church that prides itself on receiving ongoing revelation, it sure seems reluctant about proclaiming this one. Think about it. God gives a revelation, One might think his servants would proclaim it from the housetops. I mean, this is a big deal, right? But no, they act as if they're ashamed of it. They sneak it into a manual by the dark of night. And when it is leaked, they hold a lengthy interview, at which revelation is not mentioned. They issue a First Presidency statement, in which revelation is not mentioned. And then two months later, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve says, it really was a revelation. Only, it is a revelation he says he didn't receive. President Monson received it. It was just Elder Nelson's privilege to sustain it. And he says that all the other apostles sustained it too. Only none of the other apostles are talking. They are keeping mum. And President Monson hasn't mentioned anything about this being revelation. And he's the guy who was supposed to have received it. Well, it looks like the new policy is officially a revelation. It's very clear. It's here to stay. And the LDS Church is going to have a very hard time rewriting it backing off from it or removing it from the manual where it goes from here is anybody's guess that's about all for tonight until next time this is radio free mormon signing off the air